You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Sixty years ago, we didn't know that smoking increased the risk of heart disease. We didn't understand that high cholesterol and hypertension were risk factors for cardiovascular conditions. And we hadn't identified the respective risks of obesity and the benefits of exercise relative to heart disease. These pillars of cardiology are known today in large part because of the enduring work of the Framingham Heart Study. Today we'll take a look at the evolution of the Framingham Study with Dr. William Cannell, one of the original Framingham investigators from 1950 to the present. Dr. Cannell served as the study's second director from 1966 to 1979. He is also Professor Emeritus of Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Cannell. Good morning. You've been involved with Framingham for most of your professional life in one capacity or the other. Take us back to your early days with Framingham and describe to us the initial goals or expectations of the study. Yeah, the study was initiated in its current form under the direction of Thomas R. Dorber with an assignment from the Surgeon General to determine if we could in what particulars those who go on to develop heart attacks and strokes differ from those who escape it, and to try and provide information on correctable predisposing causes in order to curb what they were recognizing at the time as an emerging epidemic of coronary disease, the origins of which they did not understand. What a powerful vision at that time to have detected this potential development and then to set about designing a study to learn about it in real people. Well, it was, and what was novel at the time was using an epidemiological approach that had previously been used for infectious disease and a little use in nutritional deficiency diseases. So this was really a novel approach, which was rather unique. Talk to us about the original population, the folks who in Framingham volunteered to participate. Yes, the Framingham study population here in New England, about 20 miles west of Boston, was selected as the site because a study had been done, I think, in the 1920s on tuberculosis, and it was a long-term study, and the population had proved very uh, stable, which was important, and also was very cooperative and was used to the idea of having somebody study them. And also, it was close to Boston, where the laboratory and clinical skills necessary were readily available. So there were some very practical considerations as well as the scientific ones. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I got to suggest to you that we owe a great debt to the people in Framingham who are, after all, the basis on which many of the achievements were done because they've been steadfastly 
with us over these many years. In fact, we've lost only about 3% of the population to follow up. Remarkable. And that compared to a clinical trial when the dropout rate is, what would you estimate for our audience? Well, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's considerably higher. Mm -hmm. But the point is that we were able to keep these people with us by not abusing them. And when they made an appointment, we kept it. We didn't keep people waiting around like so many people do in the doctor's office. And we always explained to them what we were doing and why. From what I've read, this population developed a great sense of pride in its ability to contribute to understanding cardiovascular disease. Yes, they did. (laughs) Because we reported to them all the accomplishments of the study. Our local newspaper scooped the Associated Press because we (laughs) were careful to give them that information. And yes, they did develop a, a pride of accomplishment And that's what we hope they would do. I think this serves as a model for studies going forward, and it certainly has even in the U.S. and across the globe. It certainly has. Many studies have been now modeled after the Framingham study. Share with our audience what you consider the major accomplishments, and many are yet to come, I know, but to date, what would you consider? If I were to pick out the cardinal accomplishments, it would be that we propose the multivariable risk factor concept of the etiology of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. In fact, the term risk factor was actually coined here. Mm. And we also propose its application for multivariable risk assessment and with further elaboration provided health professionals with cardiovascular risk profiles, uh, thus enabling targeting of candidates likely to benefit from preventive measures. It really, in that sense, changed the way a healthcare professional approaches an individual patient. Yes, it did, and it changes the way public health people looked at populations as well. We also corrected clinical misconceptions that were currently available or currently present at the time we started. Misconceptions about the role of blood pressure, about the role of lipids, diabetes, obesity, proteinuria, left ventricular hypertrophy, atrial fibrillation, and the role of exercise in the promotion of cardiovascular disease. I think that was an important thing to do. Incidentally, we had the same misconceptions when we started. We thought we were just going to provide the evidence for those misconceptions, (laughs) and it turned out they were simply wrong what we thought about all those entities. It was a learning experience for everyone involved. Of course. (laughs) And another important thing, I think, is we provided important clues to the pathogenesis of atherosclerotic disease, which laboratory researchers and people doing experiments could pursue to get further insights into the mechanism of disease. And also importantly, I think we arouse interest in preventive cardiology. Mm. We established epidemiology as its basic science. So we got people interested in preventive cardiology, which didn't exist. And then we 
established epidemiology as the way to gain insights that were useful in preventive cardiology. And I think finally, the other thing I think that was noteworthy that really deserved to be up on this list was that we redefined acceptable values for predisposing risk factors from usual as normal to optimal for avoiding cardiovascular disease. You'd be horrified at what was considered normal for cholesterol and blood pressure and glucose at the time we started this study. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is one of Framingham's original investigators, Dr. William Cannell. We're talking about the history and the influence, the impact of the Framingham Heart Study. Dr. Cannell, this study was and continues to be transformative in the way we take care of patients, both individually and on a population basis. Looking back now, if you could have designed it in a different way, is there anything about it that you would have changed, knowing what you know now? Not basically, but I suppose following what the Gothenburg study in Sweden did, one could select a particular age group, you know, people born at a certain age and time and get everybody and get a larger population. But you've got to remember, when we started out, and you looked at clinical studies, they were case control studies, and they were talking about a dozen patients and a dozen or two dozen controls. So the concept of of actually examining and following thousands of people was considered rather a enormous undertaking and wouldn't have been possible, really, hadn't the computer technology come in to assist us, because when we started out, we had 80 variables, which we were trying to then evaluate in a cross-classification kind of way, and, you know, the permutations and combinations, you know, are huge. And cry out for technology. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You have to have a, you know, population the size of the whole United States to do that. Fortunately, we were rescued by two things. One, our study stimulated the concept of multivariable analysis and the statistical techniques. We had to go back to the National Heart Institute and ask them to help us out with a statistical formulation that could handle this kind of data. And in fact, we stimulated the whole statistical enterprise of multivariable analysis. And I think another accomplishment we did is by identifying correctable risk factors, we stimulated the pharmaceutical industry to develop drugs to correct risk factors. And I think that was another important accomplishment. But returning to the original, would we have designed it differently? Not very much so. It would be uh, difficult. The other important feature of the study that I think is worth mentioning is that it developed and evolved in a time when there was very little treatment available. And under those circumstances, it was really possible to determine without selection bias or treatment bias 
the true relationship between, let's say, blood pressure and lipids and cardiovascular disease outcomes, diabetes, obesity, and so on. Because now if somebody starts up a study like this, they have to contend with all this built-in selection bias. Right. Obviously, you were dealing with sort of an untouched population in the sense of untreated. You had a chance to observe. Of course. And in that respect, some of the oldest data we have is probably the most valuable. Mm -hmm. And it probably is worth looking at the first 20 years or so and mine as much as you can out of that because it's not going to happen again. Right. And you have blood samples from all of these patients over the many years. That's yes. also a gold mine of knowledge and, and information. Yes, we did save a little bit of each patient in that way. And it's now become very important in genetic studies. And also, it helps us examine novel risk factors if we can go back to the original samples and measure those novel risk factors. You also have a huge store of historical information on the patients in the sense of their levels of happiness or anxiety or the impact that those things can have on cardiovascular health. We have this, but what we have is one another unique feature is that we have the offspring of the original cohort mm -hmm. as well and also their offspring so we can do generational studies and the interesting thing about our family history uh, data, for example, in most cases, clinical studies, you have to rely on the family's knowledge and memory of what happened to their parents and grandparents. We've actually examined them, both the offspring and the parent, and therefore can see the true relationship, familial aggregation of disease and risk factors. And one of the things we learned is that even in this population, if you go back and simply ask the offspring about their parents, there's a 30% error. So the error in family history must be quite substantial if based simply on history. We've been talking with Dr. William Cannell about the history, the influence, and the impact of the Framingham Heart Study. Dr. Cannell, thank you so much for being our guest today. Righto. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.